What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Today's episode of the show is brought to you by Einswick Dog Quip, who's our good friend, Jason Furman. Good friend? Good friend. Yeah, I like him. (laughs) (laughs) So Jason, through Einswick Dog Quip, is the importer and distributor of many products, including HF Mills, Herm Springer, and he has his own line of tugs and toys and sleeves and equipment called Dogpool. Yeah, he's got a lot of stuff. Yeah, pretty much anything. If you want any dog-related training gear, talk to Jason at Einswick Dog Quip. The best way to do that is to look him up on Facebook. He can pretty much get you any dog gear you need at probably the best price that can be gotten. He's a grumpy old bastard, but he's a good bloke. (laughs) (laughs) Good news, folks. Bart Bellin is coming back to Australia to conduct a Nipopo Silver School in March 2019. That's going to be the 25th to the 29th of March. The master himself. The master coach. Mm, the master Coming back coach. to run the Nipopo Silver School. That's going to be in Sydney, 25 mm. to 29 March 2019. If you want to find out any more info about that or you want to book yourself in a spot, do that pretty quick because it will fill up. There's limited spaces. Remember, the Silver School is all theory. There's no dog work. It's all theory. You're in a classroom with Bart for five days. If you want to find out more information about that, get in contact with me. You can do that via email. Just shoot me an email to uh, pat at mskennels.com. Or on Facebook, you can get me at Operant Canine or get me in my personal. Just get in contact. You'll figure it out. And make sure you read the talent code. You'll <laughs> read the talent code. Yep. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. My name is Glenn Cook and joined in studio is my regular co-host, Pat Stewart. Hello. We're back again. Just us. Just us again. So we've had uh, making cans, 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 cans. I feel bad because I didn't clarify. Yeah, we didn't ask, did we? No. and A bit rude. I've heard people say both ways. So now I'm like, oh, sorry. But it was nice to have her in the studio. And yeah, it was good. Good to meet her and watch yeah. her work. Lots of cool uh, feedback. Over yeah, there lots one. of cool feedback. And she's just been down in Melbourne with David Mackelson and mm-hmm. the crew down there. So Lauren and her entourage yep. all went down there. Massive. And, yeah. I was laughing on Facebook when I saw a picture of Sharonica giving Alex Edwards a cuddle. Yeah. And Alex has got this goofy look on his face and Sharonica's hands mysteriously disappeared somewhere. Really? So I've just you have to I look at the picture because I've said, where is your hand, Sharonica Williams? Oh, is it Williamson or Williams? Williamson. Williamson. Yeah. God, I'm getting all the surnames mixed up today. <laughs> Hi, Shaz. Love you. <laughs> where, uh, by the way, where was that hand? That, oh, that's goodness. a clarification. It needs. She's a married woman, Glenn. I know. Terrible. She posted a funny photo of Dave because Dave's always running around with the. What is the this with his dustbuster? So he's always got the Dyson because it's a carp, like where they run the seminars at his place upstairs. It's all carpet. Is he that anal about cleaning up? Well, I think the deal is because it's carpet and people are training with food, they drop food. It's not so much ah, about the dog gotcha. hair. It's about that he doesn't want. I mean, it's he's doing the right thing, but it's funny. It's just a running joke that right. everybody's like, oh, Dave and he's and he's Dyson. Dyson man. Yeah, because he's running yeah. around with the, the handheld. Mm, that is quite funny. What are we talking about? 
we've got a couple of subjects to talk about today. Yep. And I think one of them, which was a listener question, was how do we say goodbye to a dog where it's not necessarily age-related or illness-related, but more behavioural-related. Mm-hmm. So, I think we're going to touch on that. We had some questions about marketing and branding, Yeah, we'll talk about a little bit. We're going to talk about that a little bit, and we're going to talk about the behavioural side a little bit. I'm going to do shortly in a session on Patreon for aggression. So, we're mm-hmm. going to talk a lot more about aggression-related issues on that episode. However, it is a very good topic. The marketing one, we've actually got someone teed up in the near future. I don't know if it's going to happen this year or early next year, but we've got a bit of a guru in marketing, in Australian marketing. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say the name yet because I don't want to moz it and then have them not turn up and then people say, well, you said someone was coming. Mm -hmm. So, we do have someone on paper that We've has- We've learned our lesson via Michael Ellis. <laughs> <laughs> who is still coming on the show. Yeah. He just had a personal thing and hasn't had the time for us. The personal thing that happened with Michael Ellis, because he's put it out there on Instagram. Oh, he has? He has. Michael's beloved dog, Pie, has passed away. Right. Which is why it's taken the time it's taken out of respect for Michael, who we totally understand and absolutely get it. As I said, he's put it on Instagram. People have seen it. And I wasn't sure what was actually happening, but- Someone showed me the post and said, Michael's dog, Pi, has passed away. Michael's had a beloved relationship with that dog who has been his partner in crime for many, many years. He's hosted in and featured in a lot of his videos that you can see on Learberg and just general Michael Ellis. Yeah, I think all the early Michael Ellis mm. videos on Learberg are him and Pi. Mm. A lot of the demo stuff is him and Pi. In a quick message to Michael, once I found out what had happened, I just said, mate, look, take all the time you need and get back to us when you're good and ready to do so. Because losing a dog is a little bit, it's one of those things that it's very hurtful, as we've discussed. We've done an episode in dealing with the loss of dogs. Yeah, It's not just when you're a public figure and your dog is a public dog, we kind of get to know the dogs a little bit in public life. Yeah. Like Randy is quite well known. Remco is quite well known. For different reasons, both because of the podcast, because of the people that we reach out. I mean, Randy's just about been in every NDTF group since he's been here. Mm -hmm. So, our dogs develop a little bit of a public profile. We publicize them. We put pictures of them on their internet and our Instagram. And people who follow us kind of get to know a little bit about the snapshot in our dogs. However, like in Michael's case, like in your case, like in my case, There's a lot about our dogs that people don't know. Mm -hmm. It's like family members and it's even like people who have a very public profile. They also have a private profile as well. And it's the same thing. I think that's where a lot of the sufferance comes from when you actually do lose a pet is the silly little things that your dog does in between that public profile in your private life. And I mean, it's the things that I understand about my dogs is that they have this amazing stupid little characteristics, those funny little in-between times. I think that's where you really fall in love with your dog. Mm. And they're the things that I think hurt the most when you lose them. Totally get it. And that's why I understand Michael needs that time. He needs that time to grieve the loss of his pet properly. So out of respect for Michael, we're not going to make a big montage about it. or No, no. He'll, He'll contact us when he's ready. Yeah, that's right. But that's actually sort of a good segue to one of the questions we got asked, and I don't know there's a whole episode in it, but it's worth us talking about now, is when is it? What she said, this Aggie, hi Aggie, uh, was when is it right to say goodbye to a dog on behavioral grounds rather than medical? And she didn't say, she didn't specify 
whether it's rehoming or euthanasia. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Or, or, and for what reasons other than just behavioural. So that's something that we can sort of discuss a little bit, I think. Mm. By the way, Aggie Ager, who is, um, I think I'm pretty sure that's he's her last name as well, mm-hmm. since we're talking about surnames, pronunciations. But what I have been doing on recent episodes, and anybody who knows me personally who's done NDTF with me as well, I scorn people who do bad puppy classes Mm -hmm. because I think it's one of the most important things in developing a dog's future is making sure that you are a competent puppy trainer. And I know for certain that Aggie is. She's one of the few people that I would feel confident. I'm glad it went that way because I thought maybe you were about to just no, no, no. I, I, I would happily send people to Aggie. I have sent people to Aggie and, and the reports have come back very good. So, yeah. as I do in life with staff and so forth, I, I mystery shop people a little bit. So, mm-hmm. it's the investigator in me. I can't help not doing those type of things. Mm-hmm. And you're the same. Yeah. You know, like you like researching things and I'm sure as soon as you hear a name, you're straight on to any form of social media you can find about what who they are. And of course. What yeah. It's what, it's what we do. Well, it's funny you say that because- I have actually had a couple of – well, here's the thing on puppy classes. Mm. So I think there's a lot of people who are doing puppy classes that never see the dogs. And so you might be doing things in puppy class that seem great, yep. right? That seem like this great idea and mm. I'm teaching the puppy X, Y, or Z. And because you only deal in puppies and every six weeks you get 10 new puppies – you never get to see the dog. Yeah. And if you haven't had your own puppy, say you started doing puppy classes when you're an adult, we ha- you had an adult dog because that's how you got in training, whatever, and you haven't done it with one, I think you run the risk. And certainly I've seen people who are just installing booby traps into their puppies from puppy class. But I'll say, since we're talking about it, I've had, I think I've had, I don't know if I've ever spoken to Aggie about this. I've had two clients that went to her puppy school and came to me for like more Sport type work. work. Yeah, yeah, ongoing obedience work. Yep. Not that there was any problem with the dog and they were both great. So, yes, I can attest to Aggie's puppy class, yeah. which is why I was about to say, oh, this is awkward because I'm going to say she does good ones. But this <laughs> is- You said she does. No, no, she does. I've, I've, I've <laughs> never heard- I mean, believe me, bad news travels fast, yeah, especially yeah. in this industry. It's one of those industries yeah. where the grapevine is a little tainted. Mm-hmm. However, when you do know people that do good work, uh, that's not also nice to get that feedback as well. And I've never had bad feedback about Aggie. Mm-hmm. I've never had anyone come back and say, oh, well, you know, I was really disappointed in her class. Mm-hmm. In fact, I get people who say she was very informative and very helpful and also has a good referral system as well, mm. which I really appreciate about. But it's one of the things I loved in when I went over to America. And I mean, they are fraught with their own issues as well. And they openly talk about that. You know, when we were networking at IACP, people over there were saying, you know, like, we think Australia has a great network system. Well, we do and we don't. And so America does as well. They do and they don't. They have people who they prefer to use and people who they don't, which totally understand that as well. But when you do have competent people that you can refer on to and you do, like you run a service that only goes so far and then you have a competent group of people that you can say, well, I'm only doing puppy school, but I've got Pat, who's a sport dog trainer. I've got Glenn, who does board and train and all those sort of things over at his kennels and so forth. And we've got X, Y and Z who do this, that and the other. That's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And same thing for us. We don't run puppy school out here. I prefer just to find somebody who does a group puppy class setting. Yeah. I do my own puppy socialization things when we're breeding dogs. I've got like 
a million videos of puppies in the shed and running around the property and Frenchies and Roddies and Shepherds and yeah, all doing good development. Yeah, doing all the critical period development work, which is absolutely essential. And it's also essential when we've actually got someone in the industry or a group of people in the industry who are doing that initial setup work for us. Mm-hmm. I can't thank them enough, especially competent people. Yeah. So thanks, Aggie, and everybody else who are doing quality. Aggie, I'll send you our bank account details so that you can pay us for that. <laughs> yeah, so you can buy us a cup Here's of coffee. That, that plug. Yeah. Hey, speaking of puppy stuff, so the other day, before we go into what you were saying, oh, I've got two things I want to talk about. Mm. You're talking about Americans and referral and stuff, so I agree with that very much. Yep. A long time ago, I was out to dinner with a professor of astrophysics from Yale University, right? So you can imagine my pathetic tiny little brain sitting next to someone you might argue is perhaps one of the smartest people on the planet. In astrophysics. Trying to have conversation, right? It's not too long before we run out of things we can talk about because I just can't keep up with her big brain. Uh, And she's like, and so what are you into? As we've just finished talking about dark matter. and um, Awesome. Yeah, amazing stories. And she was really cool. And she says, well, what are you into? And I said, oh, you know, I was still in the army at this point. I was at, I was at school doing a course there. And she says, oh, I said, I'm into dogs and blah, blah. She goes, oh, we have a dog lab here at Yale. Did you know that? And I said, no. And she's like, what's your email address? Gets her phone out. And he's like, oh, just excuse me for a second. Plugs away at her phone for 30 seconds, puts her phone back in her pocket. I get an email from her. CC'd to the dog lab saying, hey, this is my friend, Pat. We just met. He's into dogs. You guys should link up. And then, you know, 12 hours later, I'm at the dog lab in Yale University watching the experiments they're doing on canine cognition and stuff like that. So that, and that was just nothing. Like it was like, Mm. it was just in her mind, she was like, oh, your pathetic little brain just ran out of ability to talk about dark matter. What are you into dogs? Oh, okay. I'm not into that. Here you go. (laughs) Like I can link you up with someone that is in this same university, which I thought was really cool. And I found that to be, in my experience, Americans are better at that than, than Australians mm. at just going like, oh, okay, me and you are done. Here's the next guy for you that I can link you up with. They're good networking in that regards. Well, the people that I have been dealing with certainly are, I think. It's nice that people are a little bit more sharing and a little bit thoughtful about that networking process because I find that when you get jealous and insecure, it speaks volumes about the type of person that you are. It is nice. It's nice to see that people are sharing in that type of field. If you have access to things and that you can expand other people's database and knowledge base, why wouldn't you? Yeah. It's a great thing to do. Yeah. And the other thing I was going to say, I can't remember. Totally forgotten. Really? Yeah. Yeah, because someone rudely rang my phone when we were just halfway (laughs) through. Okay. We wanted to touch on the base. Now that we've fluffed Aggie up and we've talked about Yale and Dark Matter, we want to get on to the topic of... When is the right time to say goodbye to a dog for behavioural reasons? It's funny that that question come up because there's been a few dogs that I've seen in lessons recently where it has been an aggression-related problem and it hasn't been the right dog for the home. Mm -hmm. There's also times where people just don't get along with their dog. It's kind of a weird thing and I don't... I'm precarious and cautious about how I touch on this subject, but... There are times where I can relate this to human families where I've seen siblings or I've seen sons or daughters just not getting along with their parents at all. Mm -hmm. And they're like, they're an adult stage. I mean, I'm not talking about dumping them when they're children. Yeah. I know that they have a love or that kind of respect for each other that you're my dad or you're my mum and I'm your son or I'm your daughter, but you can just tell 
that the relationship is completely broken. They're miserable being in each other's company. Mm -hmm. And this is effectively like partners, boyfriend, girlfriend, boyfriend, boyfriend, girlfriend, girlfriend, doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. But when you effectively become- Did you just imply there's only two genders? I did. Oh, that's disgusting. I forgot the other 160 of them. Yeah. Yeah. So, in those- And I'd love to talk to Bertie on this. We're going to- Bertie's going to come back on the show soon. Yeah. We've got topics that we need to talk about. And uh, these are great ones to throw at Bertie. But I know myself- I mean, you don't have to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist or an astrophysicist talking about dark matter or anything like that. What you do have to identify is that when you have a relationship with somebody or something that is totally miserable, it's either time to change it or you, you've got to change it. Yeah. And it's like a, a saying that was told to me. It's a workplace saying. Sometimes it's easier to change people than it is to try and change people. Yeah. <laughs> so, I think about that in employment a lot. Yeah. When you've got to the point, and this is an employment thing as well, it's a, it's a relationship thing. Sometimes it's easier to change people than it is to try and change people. And I think about that a lot in dog-related situations as well, because I've seen people who are totally miserable with the dog they've got, like it is a wrong relationship. Mm -hmm. Everything about it is stacking up badly. What I ask people to do is write down all the pros and cons about owning that dog and have a look at that list together. And- This is an exercise that actually leads to quite a bit of confrontation. And I explain that to people and I'm very delicate about how I go about this because this is something that, as I said, it's confronting. People start listing things and suddenly they can start seeing it on paper. You know, like the pro list is so tiny compared to the cons list. So suddenly we've started to unravel the situation where we don't have a good relationship with this dog anymore. We actually don't have a like or love relationship with this dog anymore. So once we've examined that and we've looked into it for whatever reason it could be, whether it's an aggression related issue, whether it's just, you know, things aren't working out well, we've got to really start to examine where do we go from here? Mm -hmm. What's the next step? And be real about it because all you're doing is coming home resenting that relationship. And as I said before, this is a human-human relationship thing as well. When you're in a state where you're resenting the relationship, where you're totally – and it's unworkable and the, and you've gone through counselling and you've tried to do everything. By the time people come to you and me, they've gone to counselling, mm. okay, with their dog. So, when, they, when they've come to people like us or other professionals in the industry and they've sat down and they're looking at it, you're at counselling. Mm. So, if we can't work it out for them, it's time to change the dog. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that I've always said if I had a dog, because of where and how I live, and we've talked about it many times on the podcast, uh, dog aggressive dogs in my area are just not feasible to have. Mm. And I've always said if I had a dog aggressive dog and I couldn't sufficiently fix it or manage it to the point where it was, I guess you have to deal in like how ethic, like how far you're prepared to go in, in the training of, of a dog like that to put an inhibition into something. And in most cases, I think you can, but I think if I had that one in a million dog that really was truly dog aggressive and that wasn't going to change and I couldn't change it, I've always said I couldn't keep that dog. And I'd find, mm. I'd find somewhere for that dog to go. I'm not just going to give up on it entirely. I would, there's always, there's avenues to rehome. And yeah, euthanasia is is a last resort. Yeah. And And it should always be seen as a last resort. Yeah. And I think typically if someone has a dog that behaviorally 
doesn't fit in for them, it probably is an awesome fit for someone else because like we've talked about in the past is that both of our dogs would be a disaster for in a pet home, just as someone who didn't have a, a training outlet for the, the dog. Both our dogs would be medicated. Misunderstood. It, yeah. yeah. And so maybe you could be that for a different dog. Mm. You know what I mean? A dog that needs to be out somewhere else. Like, for example, if I had a Kelpie that was constantly, that really needed to do stock work, I don't have an outlet for that. I can't provide a, even a surrogate for that as frequently enough as a dog might need. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to keep that dog. And that's not to say I'm just going to go, oh, well, like you're, you're dead. That means that's I'm right. going to yeah. find an avenue for it. And this is my personal experience, but I am not involved in rescue. And it, and I, I strictly professionally do not get involved in rehoming dogs. Uh, I get loads of questions about it. At least once a week, I'll get an email from someone who a lot of the time people I've never heard of, I don't know them, but I'll get contacted asking about, oh, do you know anyone looking for this kind of dog? And I just say, no, I, I, I strictly do not get involved in rehoming of dogs. Mm. That's just a personal thing. I hate to do it. The only time I have done it is for close friends of mine who for one reason or another have to rehome their dog. But when I have done that, it's actually quite easy because the dog has never been a problem dog. It's been a, a problem circumstance. Yep. So my opinion on that is probably a little bit skewed. Because they're not a dog that someone just doesn't want. They're not like a dog that got found in rescue and is now nobody's dog. Yep. They're someone's beloved dog, but the circumstances meant that they can no longer keep the dog. But when someone contacts me and says, hey, I can't keep this dog anymore, and it's as simple as that, I'm like, beat it. I'm not not interested. I, I can't get involved in that. Because it always is a disaster. And I'm just not – I just can't go down that road. Yeah. that it, And it's not only that. It's the time it takes. Yeah. It's an incredible amount of time to network around and, and try and organise meets. That's why I have so much respect for people who do do a lot of work in rescue because sometimes it's a killer job and I see how draining and taxing it is on them. I also see how rewarding it is at times yeah. where the right home is. Yeah, I see how rewarding it is and I see the relief that they have when they actually have matched up dogs. So, look, kudos to people who are doing it. Continue. You are the right person to do that. But anyway, getting back to our topic there was a Roddy years ago that he was quite an aggressive dog, very, very aggressive, human aggressive and dog aggressive, et cetera, et cetera. And I rescued the dog. Uh, I went and picked him up and somebody said to me, you know, as an ethical standpoint, why would you take that dog? Why would you look at rehoming that dog? And I actually said, well, I've got a client in New Guinea who's actually really interested in him. And yeah. I said, I think it's the perfect lifestyle for the dog. And then I had other people saying, oh, now you're going to send a dog to New Guinea where it's going to get chopped up and it's going to do this. And I said, come on, settle down. I said, do you actually know that for gospel that that's what's going to happen to the dog? And they said, oh, well, you know, I've heard bad stories. And I said, well, I can tell you bad stories that happen right in your backyard. So, yeah, yeah. you know, we need to calm down a little bit. Long story short... The dog went to New Guinea. It was a fantastic working dog. Had a great relationship. The couple of guys that it got paired up with, like this was a shit of a dog, let me tell you. I mean, I didn't have a relationship with this dog. It just wanted to kill me. Mm -hmm. But I sent him to New Guinea. The guys that befriended the dog had a great relationship with the dog. He had so many live bites, it wasn't funny. Yeah. And he was an iconic dog. He was a mean mother of a dog. Yeah. You know, we talked back and forth on the phone prior to him going over there. You know, we were worried about would he do okay in the heat, dog thrived. It just seemed to be the right environment for him. Mm -hmm. There's always someone for someone yeah. and there's always a place for someone. Yeah, You know, like I look at people sometimes now um, when you're character profiling people and there's people who are a bit maniacal in their behaviour and their nature and 
maybe sometimes they were meant to be a Viking or something like that. Oh, yeah. And they never got to play their role as a Viking. Yeah. You know, and they're, they're trapped in a modern day society where they can't be the person that they, their genetics was designed to be. It's yeah. an interesting thing. Well, I like I know a lot of people like that. The guys that- Well, you I would was, because you're a warrior. Yeah, well- <laughs> It's true though. Like nah. you've, you've been in well, but there's plenty of people. Situations. There's plenty of people I was in the army with that were just born in the wrong century, I think, and yes, really yep. were extremely just thrived on violence. Yeah, and outside of that, they were very nice and kind people, but in this relish in the violence that was available to them in a war situation, and yep. then post that, don't fit in very well. And there's, I think, that can represent as like a PTSD type situation for a lot of people when yep. it's probably not a PTSD. It's probably like more depression Yeah. Um, just because- You can't live it. the life that you were supposed to live. Yeah. Mm. And it's just, this is feels right. There's a lot of good books on this. There's a lot of people, oh, this is so far from dog training, but- It's interesting a, though. Yeah. Well, there's a book called On Killing, which is a pretty good one people mm. should look at, look at. But there's a lot of, say, World War II veterans, right? So it's okay for me to talk about on killing and on combat, there's two books by the same author. Yeah, mm. that's right. So, but there's someone like me. I joined the army to because I wanted to join the army. No one forced me to do anything. I tried very hard to get into the unit I was in. It's not like I um, just happened to be in a, that situation. So, by the time you're downrange, it's there's a lot of consent involved in that, right? Like before you get there, like you've chosen to be there, and so you can talk about the things and your experiences positively or negatively, and you can just talk about those openly. Mm. And so what you don't find much of these days is people who, like, you hear, say, Vietnam conscripts or World War II type people who will say, you know, I had a, my grandfather, he never talked about the war. And sometimes the reason that is is because they're embarrassed by what a good time they had. Yep. Right? And it's not that the experience was, was so bad, it's that the experiences were so good and they they have an internal conflict on why it was so good because yeah. it's it really should seem like the worst thing ever. Mm. Well, that's why a lot of motorcycle gangs were started in yeah. the early days is because people needed to reunite and try and get back to yeah. well, the what shared they experience. Lost. Yeah. yeah, like for example, man, we're so far away, but it doesn't uh, matter. It's, it's, <laughs> it's relevant. We can we can segue it back. One of my closest friends um, who broke his neck and is in like physically in a bad way um, had to leave the army. He had a quad bike roll on him and really crushed his spine so he's out of the army but uh and that was op on operations but he called me one day quite upset and he's like hey i just want to run something past you like i feel like i've been made to feel like a bad person for laughing at a story and i just want to check with you like because it was you it was something that happened to you am i a bad person for thinking this is funny I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, you remember that time you fell in that sewer? <laughs> and I was like- yeah. Oh, you've told me this story. Yeah, I was yeah. like, yeah, I do. And essentially, we're walking out from a target and it was, you know, under night vision goggles, you don't have a lot of depth perception. And I could see that this was water. We'd already crossed a river. I'd, I was wet up to my chest anyway. And my hips were killing me because I didn't know at the time, but because I have tears in the cartilage in my hips. And I just looked at this- Last little aqueduct and thought, I can't jump that. I'm not going to bother. Like, why bother? You're already wet. Just walk through it. At worst, it's going to be knee-deep water. What difference does it make at this point? And I stepped into it and it was a fucking sewer. Oh. And I went up to my chest in poo. Oh. Right? <laughs> and, and I had to be pulled out by this guy. And, and um, <laughs> so he's... 
So he's telling me, and then get this, mate, this is on sunrise. So now like the sun's coming up and I have to walk like another four Ks through. This was the last, it was the last like bit of water before the desert and I had to walk like another four Ks through morning sun. By the time I got back to my car or my motorbike, I was like caked on shit. I walked up to the guys that were doing a burn, like a rubbish burn at the, at the, area where we stay the video just burn Um, your clothes and go nude i walked straight up to it (laughs) i walked straight up to their burn fit yeah took my armor off and put that down because that's the only thing i can't burn and just took everything else off and threw it straight in the fire yeah um and then walked over to the the headquarters guy i was like hey i need all new shit because i've just been filling it falling i need all new shit because i've just been caked in shit yeah (laughs) but so um and then i spent the next like so then i leave my armor out in the sun and have to pick poo off of all my gear for the next couple of days anyway you shoot your gun to go yeah and this is this is like a week into a three-week gig right so i'm out there for another two weeks and no opportunity to get to get clean anyway so he's telling that story and he's laughing while he's telling it and then pat fell in the sewer ha 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 and his friends were like oh my god that poor man. Yeah, like, I've just been laughing a, at you. Yeah, for yeah five that's minutes. right. But it's a different mindset because he was like, "No, it's a funny story. Like that's funny." And they, and and they're like, "No, falling in a sewer is not a funny story. That's a that's a horrible thing. That poor man <laughs> fell in a sewer." And he's and he's like, "No, it's a funny thing because then he had poo all over him and he had to spend two weeks covered in poo." And then. Oh, really? You didn't have a shower for two weeks? <laughs> yeah. Well, so this is yeah. No, there's no way to. Oh, how am I going to shower? But Mate, so I would tip so many bottles of water. Yeah, well, that's basically what I was trying to do. Yeah, and baby wipes. But anyway, so it's perspective varies, right? And so there's a lot of people who then will then say you can't tell that story. He had to hear from me. He had to call me straight away, and he was quite upset when he called me and was like, "It's okay that we laugh at that, right?" And I was like, "Yeah, of course it's fine. We laugh at that. Like, the, what the fuck else are we gonna do? You had to drag me out of the poo." Mm. And he was like. Yeah, and it's especially funny because- That puts because, a whole new spin on your mate getting you out of the shit. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, and it's especially funny because like I, he was next in the line. He's like, I was going to do the same thing. I was in, I was in equally as much- Oh, he was, was about to yeah, jump and, in the poo. And I saved oh, him from God. it. I was like, well, I'm happy I could help you. Anyway, so it's perspective. We're so far away from anything we were talking about. I know. Now Now that we've talked about swimming in- Me falling in poo. In poo in the middle of the desert. Yeah. It was several years. It was many, many years ago. People, don't be afraid. Don't, don't be afraid to shake my hand. It, it's all cleaned off yeah, by now. Yeah, he's had all the injections. And- Probably all those skin cells have changed over by now. I'm not even the same man that fell in the poo. Mm. Back to actual dog training. Yes. When Chad and Jay were here, we were having a discussion one night over dinner at my place and what is the function of a dog trainer? Mm. And I think it's- the, the function of a dog trainer is to reduce the negative impact that you and the dog have on each other, that the client and the dog yep. have on each other as close to zero as possible. Mm. And so I think if you have a dog with behavioral issues and you've gone to as many lengths as, as can be gone to, right? Like as far as you're ethically willing to go and assuming that you're not caught up in someone else's, say, there's some force-free zealots out there who would, you know, it's death before discomfort, and provide easy, right? Yeah, but so so assuming that you've you've not fallen into that trap and you've done everything, and the negative impact is not as close to zero as you can accept, or especially if I think your impact is very high in the negative to the dog, I think that's where you can where I draw the line yep. because. I will modify my life to suit the dog if you, if I'm getting the outcome that I want. Because in that same conversation, we we're talking about how at that point, I mean, I've got him more under control now because he's more he's 
age is higher, but Remy at that point was really somewhat unmanageable. And mm. I, and his negative impact to me was still very close to zero because I accepted that because he provided me something else. He, yep. he was providing me- You knew what you were getting into. Yeah. And yep. so I wanted that. That's yep. no problem. So, Same with Randy. Yeah. Mm. So I couldn't take him places because I wanted extreme power in everything that he did. And so I accept that. Now I can because he's old enough and we have it under control. But if you can't get your negative impact on the dog- as close to zero as you can, and it's still weighing heavily into the negative, then maybe that's the time to rehome a dog. Mm. I think that's probably the formula with which I would apply. And as I say, I think there's a few sort of lines in the sand for me that a dog can cross and say, well, I'm sorry, we can't keep you around anymore. Like, and I can't rehome you, can't go anywhere. For me, you know, predatory aggression towards a child is basically a line in the sand for me. I won't- I, Yeah, people, you've got to look at this. What can you do and what can you actually manage? Yeah. And, you know, I'll talk about it now because I'm open about this is that I, if someone, if a dog has the opportunity not to bite a child, but does, you know, I'm talking about a dog that not like the, the kids laying all over the dog and it nips at something like that. I'm talking about like a dog that runs out of the house into the street to nail a kid. To nail a kid. Mm. I can't keep that dog around. It's not worth the risk. Yep. And I, I, there's a lot of people that will say, well, you could rehome to a place where they would never encounter a child or whatever. And for me, that's not worth the risk. I mm. think that there's no, I love my dogs very, very much. But if I thought for any, any moment that my dogs were going to hurt someone else, someone's random kid who I don't know. Or your know, kid. Yeah, but like, let's keep the scales that way, right? Like yeah. I love my own personal dogs. Yeah. But if I thought my dogs were going to go out of their way in order to bite some random person's kid who I don't know anything of and never going to see again. I can't accept that. That's that's not something. But what that if I you could manage it and you could make sure that dog wouldn't leave your property and you were happy with the way? Yeah, but I think that there's so many people that say they could, but accidents happen. And if a dog has it in him to to do it, to, to not just, and I don't mean be pushed into it. I mean want to, to do, do it. it. Yeah, I feel like for me the risk is that it's not worth the risk to keep that dog around. Mm. Um, and, it's like and, that old saying that it's a movie saying is the juice worth the squeeze? Yeah, exactly. And mm. and I think that. Accidents happen and yep. no matter how many precautions and the yeah. problem that I find, and this is one of the reasons I don't like to get in, involved in the rehoming of dogs is the story of why the dog needs to be rehomed gets watered down as it goes around. So what starts out as a dog, this dog for sure will kill a kid first chance he gets. That dog goes through a few different people and the story gets watered down and now this dog, he, oh, he's not great around kids. Yeah, You know what I mean? And mm. as the dog changes hands, the story gets watered down and it, even if it doesn't have to change hands, sometimes people, you know, the way memory works is every time you access a memory, you have the ability to modify it and put it back away. And that's the correct, that's the new memory that you put away. So maybe after five or six years, you have seen that your dog has the capacity to seek out and bite a child. Mm. And you tell yourself a story over that time, like, oh, well, the wind was blowing from the south. The, 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 <laughs> it's a, that's a shout out to my New Zealand friends. Yep. The sun was in his eyes, whatever. Tell yourself this story and it's, you can water it You down believe your, your lie. Yeah, yeah well, you that's start, right. Yeah, you actually do neurologically believe your yeah. own lies. So for me, and that's, that's really it, and I'm mm. happy to say that here on this podcast, like that's a line in the sand that, that, and I'm, I'd say that publicly and I, I tell it to people if they call me with the problem and I've only ever said it one time. Yep. But yeah, that's if the dog goes out of its way to bite a kid, then that's pretty much the only thing that I'll say, all right, well, there's no point in- but what about another dog if it was going to kill another dog? Yeah, I can manage that, right? Because that, like the risk is then in my head. Um, but that 
dog to another person is their kid. Yeah, I understand that. I get that. This is my. These are the lines in the sand that I've drawn. You're so um, biased. I know I am, right? Yep. Humans over dogs. Mm. What a piece of shit. Um, <laughs> so, like, I think really dog aggressive dogs. I personally wouldn't want to live with that dog, and it would be difficult if I couldn't. If I couldn't make the dog at least neutral to dogs, I personally wouldn't keep it. I've never experienced that, and I haven't found a dog that I can't do that with. Mm. But I know those dogs exist. I just probably haven't encountered it. Yep. And so. I just, for me, it's, I wouldn't keep that dog because of the high probability of it, me encountering another dog and a mistake happening, mm. but I wouldn't mind rehoming that dog to someone who had a lower probability of making a mistake and having an accident and that problem happening. But I think that so long as that for another dog, I might accept that there's a percentage, I don't know what that percentage is, chance that if it happened, well, it could happen. But for biting a kid or running down, killing a kid, even just biting a kid and causing a permanent problem, with, like that's where I'm like, no, mm. it's not worth. It's not worth the risk. I've known quite a degree of people who have got dogs that are aggressive, both to people and to other dogs. I probably see more dogs than the average person anyway, mm-hmm. living at a boarding kennel. But not only that, in times where I counsel people who work in private lessons with aggression. There's a lot of people out there who have got dogs that would bite you. Mm. No no two ways about it. But they understand this and they manage their risks well. That would include biting a man, a woman, a child. It, the dog wouldn't differentiate. It would take what it could get. However, they muzzle the dog when the dog's out in public. They have secured fencing and suitable environment for the dog to be housed in, mm-hmm. I guess is the correct term. They manage their risk well. They understand how to do it. Now, I have put before them a list of options that are available to them, including euthanasia, because in my mind, I say, why would you want to live with that dog? It's fundamentally a ticking time bomb. However, to them, it's their child. Okay? Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. their homicidal child. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's the same thing when you ask a person. I mean, I've known people who have got horrible children, and you know, they're just- you know there's something wrong with them, yeah, but yeah. it's their child. And how could you ask somebody to willfully put their child down when they can? They seem to be able to manage them and keep their aggression and their problems at bay from society. I don't know how to argue that point. No, and I don't think I would, but mm. I wouldn't be involved with a dog. Um, Personally? No. Yeah. That's right. And to be honest, for me, that level of aggression – is just fundamentally too unworkable and too destructive. Well, it's unstable. What, like mm, I would argue, is. why is a dog doing that? Like from where, from what part of his brain is a two-year-old a threat? Yeah, and, and therefore, like for me, I, like I say, yeah, I'm but not, predatory behaviour is not about the threat. Well, that's right. So it's about the joy. Yeah, that's right. So, mm. so from what part of his brain? Like, what is it about that dog that we like? <laughs> Right, like, why is he willing to do that, and why do we? It can like be that modified. Personality? Yeah, if it can be mod, if it can be, mm. that's what I'm saying. If if I can look, uh, at, look what happened between uh, your sister's greyhound and the cat. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you're talking about biological enemies and yeah. a dog that is systematically like its DNA is screaming at it. You yeah. know, I mean, it's been bred upon bred upon bred. I mean, its its genetic coding says kill that cat. Yeah, and yet they're they're living and sleeping together, and so. That's a good example because- Like the Ghostbusters things. Um, fire and brimstone's going to come down. Dogs and cats living together. <laughs> <laughs> but now my sister loves her cat very much. Yeah. But if she'd called me one day and said, we made a mistake, the dog's eating the, the cat, 
I would have been like, ah, oh, bummer. <laughs> you know what I mean? You just lost every cat person on the planet. Yeah, I, I, that's fair enough. Yeah. But if- no, it's not. I like cats. I've got, a, I've got a cat. Yeah, but still I would have been like, oh, damn, that is bad news. That I am, I am very upset about that. They're bugger. And, and then I would have carried on with my day. Yep. But if I have a client that says, oh, well, we made a mistake in the training and now a two-year-old is dead, that's not the same. I can't, I can't reconcile that. And that's, so I, that's biased though. You, you're a, yeah, I know. Uh, this is what I'm saying. This is my opinion. You're so negating the, away the fact that people do love their cats and rabbits the same way that you yeah, love your son. That's right. Mm. And I, I'm 100% aware of that. Yeah. Um, I, to be honest and, and to be fair to you, I, like, I would have laughed about that 20 years ago when I was younger. I would have laughed about that and thought, how ridiculous. I'm not laughing. I'm, no, I know, I'm, I know you're not, but I'm, I'm just saying I'm talking from my perspective. I would have thought, how ridiculous that you're getting so upset about a pet rabbit or a pet guinea pig or something like that, that a dog has gone in there and mauled it. Mm. However, since I've really delved into this and it's been explained to me well and I've grown up and I've got an education on it, you know, love is love. Yeah, yeah. It truly is. Love is love. If you love, like if you've invested love into something or somebody or an animal or whatever it is, love is love. Like you can't help the way you feel. Yeah. And when people mock that and they think it's funny and hysterical, you're actually, that is like a form of cruelty. Like you just don't, you're not empathetic about the, the way other people feel about that sort of situation. Yeah. Because the same way that your sister feels about that little cat is exactly the same as you feel about rip. Yeah, yeah, I get all that. And, yeah. and I'm not I'm I'm just saying from my personal point of view that's how how I think about it. So yep. like that's a risk. Could the greyhound have could we have made a mistake somewhere and it's possible the greyhound ate the cat? That's possible. Yes. yes. And for anybody who's trying to do the same thing with a dog that wants to eat a kid, is it possible we could make a mistake and the kid could get bitten? Yes. yes and is. so it's for me it's about the risks. I, I yep. don't I don't know whether the I don't know whether the juice is worth the squeeze. Yeah. And that's um, that's a that's a fair point. Yeah. And and so like I say like we seem to value our own before externalizing. Yeah. Well, mm. as my favorite person on the planet Katrina Hartwell once said, we even been, above Jordan Peterson? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's that's quite an accolade. Yeah. Well done Katrina. <laughs> We've been selectively breeding dogs for centuries or thousands of years or whatever it is, housing them, feeding them. The least we can ask of them is they don't try and eat our offspring. Yeah. Like I think that's I think that's reasonable. And yeah. so Yeah, that's actually it's a pearl of wisdom from our good yeah. friend Katrina. And so like I say, I'm not talking about a dog that has a fear response or has been backed into a corner and felt he had no other option. You know, we've all seen those videos of people thinking it's funny when their toddler is annoying a dog and clearly the dog is putting up with as much as he can. I'm not talking about that situation. I'm talking about the dog that it goes, I see you over there, little kid, and I'm going to eat you. Mm. That for me is where I, I draw a line. Like I say, the problem is I think if a dog sees that a kid as a, as prey, yep. that's probably genetic, right? And, People are breeding all these dogs and like, I just feel like my personal opinion is 100% my personal opinion. And I want to clarify this is just when the, the dog sees this as prey, it's not pushed into it and they got to be gone. They got to be gone from the, they got to be gone from the it bloodline. Can be a, it, look, it can be a learned behavior as well. Predatory behavior is based on excitement about movement, mm -hmm. about the catching of something that's moving around. It comes from a different region of the brain than, than standard defensive aggression does. Like- 
its excitement, like the animal is elated, the fact that it's going to actually chase something down and catch it. It, it is a behaviour that can be suppressed. I've seen it suppressed in dogs before. Uh, as I said, I'm going to talk about this a lot more in the Patreon episode on, on aggression mm-hmm. um, or aggressive-related behaviours. But people constantly misdiagnose predatory behaviour as a, as a form of aggression where it comes from a different region. Yeah. I feel like I want to justify this and I can give a real-world example. One of my best friends had a dog that just didn't – there was never a problem with his kid, but mm. you could see the dog didn't like him. Yep. So we rehomed the dog. Yep. No problem. It, and I'm happy to do that. It yep. wasn't – there was I, never I, an incident. There was never a problem. But yep. reading the dog's body language, you could see he's not comfortable around that kid. And the kid – there was never an issue. There was never a trigger. There was never a day that the kid did anything that actually solicited – response from the dog. Yeah. But we made sure that never happened. Yeah. And so we said- You're managing your risks. Yeah. Yeah. And it, like- It's a sensible thing to do. And I'm yeah. not arguing. I'm I'm in a- I actually yeah. am in agreement to you. So, But I just don't want to be painted by someone listening saying, oh, well, Pat says any any dog that doesn't like kids has to be put down. That's not what I'm saying at all. Um, and we rehome that dog to someone who mm. doesn't have kids. And that kid, that dog will happily see kids around. He just didn't like living with one. Look, it's as simple as that. We're talking about the options. And yeah. this is the, where the whole podcast- well, the question originated from is what should we do? And what we need to do is we need to manage our risk. We need to look at the options available and also remember where there's smoke, there's fire. Mm. So in these situations like this, when we're looking at it from an outside perspective, because people are coming to us, they're paying us for a consult. There's, It's like people who came to King Solomon, you know, like you're basically the wise man who is judging the situation at hand. And when you look at everything on paper and when you examine the facts before you, like you said, this is a ticking time bomb. It might not happen tomorrow. It might not happen next week. But if there is any given mistake where the parent is not supervising and the dog gets in proximity of the child, that a bite is going to take place. Well, we don't know the severity of that bite as well. We don't know if this is just going to be a nip. We don't know if this is going to be like a a grab and shake or we don't know whether it's going to be a fatality, Mm. which is, you know, like often when we get to the stage where we're reading about how a a dog has killed a child on the news, a lot of times we find this could have been prevented quite easily. Had they have looked at the hallmark signatures that the dog was showing, I actually want to bite this child. Mm. So in those type of situations, like, you know, I've spoken to people in situations where their kids have been bitten badly by dogs before and they've either rehomed or euthanized or done whatever they've done. And people said, well, why did you rehome the dog? And they've said, well, because it went into a kid-free home and it was more about a problem between our child and the dog, not children and dogs. Yeah. Because as much as we love our own little children sometimes, some of our children can be demon spawns. They can be little, <laughs> little shits that antagonize situations. Yeah. And- Although I'm precarious and delicate in saying this, some kids have it coming. (laughs) They push a situation. They antagonize the dog so much that the dog was basically, well, I mean, in that situation, it's not about predatorial. It's about defensive reactivity. And which, as I say, is a different thing. That's a different, that's a different Mm. category we're pushing into. And Mm. and it is, it is. I think that. I'm in a somewhat of a position to talk over this because I have- uh, Dogs and children. Yeah. I have a three-year-old and two dogs. and But both my dogs are, first of all, extremely well-bred and very stable. Mm. So they're genetically as good as I would argue. I think I could successfully argue that the breeders of both my dogs are at the top of their game in, in each breed. Mm. So they're very stable dogs. They've had very good training. I would 
like to suggest that I'm reasonably good at training my dogs. And they understand that I have their best interests at heart. Yep. I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah, so, I agree. So my dogs- I, I don't think anybody would argue that. Yeah. So if they've watched, I mean, p- plenty of people have heard you talk on this podcast. Plenty of people have seen your videos. Yeah. And you've had a lot of people that have come to you for consults for similar situations. Yeah. But so. so so what I mean is like, of course, even my kid can be annoying to dogs. Every kid can at some point, but my dogs understand they have the option to get up and leave. Yeah. And it doesn't really happen because they're obsessed with him and they, they try to spend as much time with him as possible. And you supervise. Yeah. I'm always there. Yeah. But if my dog, if either one of them is in a situation where they begin, so they would never give the child a warning. Mm. They would never give Rip like a warning growl or anything like that because they know that is, that's a step in the wrong direction when they have the option to leave. Yep. And the rule in our house, and it's a hundred percent rule and Rip understands it. Everybody understands it is when my dogs are in their boxes, you don't, you don't fuck with them. Yep. If they get in their box, like that's their place. You, you do not interact with them. They're invisible when they're in the box. And so they have the option of getting up, walking over and getting in their box. Let me just point something out right now. Like you've just outlined correct parenting. Yeah, like yeah. everything that yeah, you've yeah, said. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and to be honest, mate, since in the entire time I've known you with things like this, your outlook on life is sensibility. You know, like you've led people before, you've managed things, you manage yourself, you manage your risks, okay? And you're sensible about what you're doing. Some of our clients that we've seen – don't do those same type of things. And I'm not suggesting that our clients are bad people. It's just that the only time they start managing their risks is after something, like they're reactive, mm. not proactive. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's a problem for a lot of people who get themselves in situations with their dogs is their level of reactivity to a situation. Like, oh, I didn't think it would happen. Well, you weren't paying attention. Yeah. You know, like like I said, where there's smoke, there's fire. Like you don't ignore those situations. If you see smoke in a situation, go and investigate it. I can smell smoke. Oh, well, it's a good chance that the, your house is burning down. Yeah, yeah. Don't you know? wait for the fire. Don't wait for the you. fire, you know. Like go and, go and put it out in the early stages. Go and do something about it. Yeah. And it's the same thing that I see with people with their dogs. I say, well, you know, like what happened then? Like tell me about the situation like leading up to this outcome what happened prior to that? Oh, I don't really know. I didn't really see it coming. When you start investigating it, they actually did see it coming. Yeah. They just ignored all of the warning signs. But look, they're not educated in it as well. No, that's right. And so, just as we're you're not saying, we're not astrophysicists. We don't <laughs> we don't know about the emerging significance of dark matter yeah. until somebody points out the obvious relationship of it. She was on the cusp of proving the existence <laughs> of it. One of the big issues with dogs biting kids is. I think in the moment, parents almost always do the wrong thing mm. behaviorally by the dog, the right thing by the child, but the wrong thing by the dog is that if a, if a dog if a kid has pushed the dog to the point where it bites them, what you do is you run over there, you hear the scream, the bark, the bite, whatever, you grab the kid and you remove because you want to check on the kid and treat the kid. Yep. But the dog just got exactly what he wanted through the behavior of biting the kid because if he made was, it, made the threat go away, yeah, you made him go away. Mm. So. You could counsel people on a better way to deal with it, but it's not going to happen. Mm. It's just not going to happen. if you do, Not if your when kid, your panic system is already right. engaged. Yeah. So if the kid gets bitten, the first thing you're going to do is grab the kid, take him away from the threat. Yeah. And then sum up what's going to happen to the dog's yeah. but, future from but there. Right there and then the dog got exactly what he wanted. He got reinforced. Mm. So it's problematic, right? It's it's a hard one to deal with. And that's actually funny. I was talking to um, Dr. Robert Holmes many years ago about a similar situations between dog fights when two dogs are fighting 
and the loser dog is generally picked up and taken inside where that's um, that kind of enrages the situation even further yeah. because the dog is basically thinking, well, I've just won this fight. Yeah. You know, I should have been rewarded against this little dog that provoked me and yet this is the dog that's going to be treated in the king position when basically that's my right and role. Yeah. So their situation isn't over. It's not done and dusted because we've now created another significant behaviour mm. where we've taught the the victor dog that the loser dog actually gets elevated to a prime status. Yeah. It's funny how dogs think about things. Like we're we're constantly analysing it from the human perspective rather than the canine perspective. Yeah, which is usually a lot simpler, right? It's effective. It's a mm. strategy that's worked well for them. You know, like I've just punched up the dog that we were having um, a squabble over the significance of the role in the relationship at home. I'm troubled to say the alpha position because it leads to so much misdiagnosis. Uh-huh. But anyway, it's a ranking position nonetheless, which exhibit which is exhibited in nature. If you watch any National Geographic show and you're watching why aggression actually happens, like pay attention to why it happens and the resources they're looking for and the stat- yeah, yeah. and Jordan Peterson talks about it in the first chapter of his book. If you've read it and you're listening to the lobster story that he talks about. Stand up straight with your shoulders back. Stand up straight with your shoulders back. He talks very significantly about the whole relationship of lobsters and our relationship to them and how scientists have studied their brains and and so forth. Very, very interesting chapter. Mm. So, Do you think we've answered Aggie's question? Extensively. <laughs> I hope that we're on the right track. I wonder if she was like, no, I mean when they're like, don't sit straight. <laughs> I doubt it. Yeah, I think we've we've answered her. Yeah, I think so. You know, I said I forgot what I was going to talk about, the other thing. Mm. I remember now. Uh, this is not about falling in another river of shit, is it? No, no, no. I was okay. The other night I was – so I've been in a few conversations online about markers and we have talked about it on here a few times and people are some – of the, some of the people that listen to us are starting to come around to the idea that maybe you need more than one marker or you should use more than one marker, not that you need, or that there's benefits to it. We're going to do a Patreon episode on this, aren't we? I think so, yeah. Mm. But one thing I wanted to talk about was if you get onto Facebook and look up Black Flag Kennel, Sam has a litter of puppies at the moment, right? And he's installing the clicker. And the way that he does that means that those puppies probably never have to go through much hardship in their life. And I can't remember how I got to thinking about this earlier on the episode. We must have been talking about something. Is this the one where he's got the shell pool and he's tipping the food in there with all the bottles inside it? Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, it's a very good video. So, what happens is that clicker gets loaded in a competitive combative way that incorporates struggle Mm. and the punishment of not trying hard enough is imposed on those puppies by the other puppies because they eat their food right and so if there's if there's six puppies there's only enough food for five and a half well there's enough for them all but there's there's as much as they need not as much as they want it's a shame sam is not doing seminars yeah well on that kind of stuff there's a lot of people that need to learn from him and so especially his bite development work and everything i really i just hope it's not something that dies with sam because it would be a shame for yeah his knowledge and practicality in those fields to be stay with him and him only yeah i agree he's very very good at it Oh, this is what we're talking about because we're talking about puppy puppy class and stuff. Mm. And so people who are breeding puppies have missed this opportunity to put that into their puppy and show that create a mindset around reacting to your marker that is with the puppy for life. Mm. And there's so many people who are just being lazy in the development of puppy. I don't understand. I see so many puppies from people who are, you know, blah, 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 genetics, imported this. 
and there's no development. Yeah. They just let the puppies get fat and eat from a, their own bowl and they have no food drive mm. uh, because they, they've had as much food as possible for their whole life. Yeah. And it means that to do good training with that dog, the dog's going to have to go through a manufactured hardship. Yeah. It means that we as trainers are going to have to show the dog the scarcity of food and put him through more hardship than he would have to go through if you simply- Installed it as a pup. And, and it would be- I mean, Sam's, I would argue, one of the best at it, but you don't even need to be anywhere near as good as him. All you have to do is feed the fucking dogs or feed the puppies from a communal dish, Mm. click, and put it on the floor. If you just did that, you would end up and then take it away when it's gone, right? I think I shared my observation, which I constantly do in NDTF, is that the best dog trainers in the world don't feed from a dog bowl. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And and with puppies- just feed them communally. That's yep. that's it. So they have to. If you want to eat more, you can just by trying harder. And if, yep. and if you don't try hard enough, you'll eat, you'll eat less. And what happens is it ebbs and flows. One puppy will miss out on this session, and then six hours later, he'll get more in this session. And he learns it in a way that is with him for life. Um, and I don't have to then, as a trainer, later put that dog through any difficulty because I talk about this. You know, people say the way we talk about withholding and saying the box work and that kind of thing. Mm. And people say, oh, you must be, your dog must be starving all the time. Well, I almost never, I think twice in my, my dogs, two years I've been training him, have ever actually taken a, a meal off of him because he understands that from when he's a puppy, he, he missed out on half a meal because his sister ate more than him. Yep. And so I don't ever have to do that. He understands the consequence and therefore doesn't put himself in a situation where he would do that. And yep. at most it might be twice. If we if if breeders do that with their young puppies, then imagine how imagine this is how I got to thinking about it. Imagine you run a really nice puppy school, and you never had to teach anybody about how to give food or how to load a clicker or a marker or anything because everybody turned up with a puppy that had like when they bought their puppy, their breeder handed them a clicker and said, "Your dog knows this, mm. and he will come flying to you when you click this." Imagine where you could start if you were running puppy classes. Your day one would be so different. And in the say you have, I think, what are they, four weeks normally, four lessons. The the things that you could show people would be through the roof yep. compared to what you're trying to show people who with a puppy that turns up fat and not knowing anything. Yep. If you turn up with an activated little puppy and you can say, hey, here's – and simple stuff like putting collars on, collars off, like giving cues for work and all that kind of crap. We harp on about, but a breeder could do in seconds. It's not mm. like it's a lot of work. This is what does my head in. Like, why are you breeding these fucking dogs if you're not prepared to do something as simple as clicking before you put a bowl of food on the floor? For anybody that paid attention when Gabina Markanova came over, she was adamant about that in her seminar. Like, prior to people coming into the dog spot, I reminded people, don't feed your dog before the seminar. Yeah. Like Gabina has strictly in- instructed. Yeah. So, there were a few dogs. Georgie was handling Tate. Tate. Yeah. Georgie was handling Tate. When the dogs came in, most of them were flat and unresponsive. And Gabina said, these dogs have been fed. Yeah. You know, there's no two ways about it. So, she translated through Patrick, don't feed these dogs tonight. Let their food be through training. You can reward them through training. You know, and it's for people who are concerned about this. We, I think we've- 
put a caveat on this so many times that your dog is not going without food. Your dog is earning food through training. This is mm. why the concept of the best dog trainers don't feed in a dog bowl. They feed through work. They feed through performance. Like you're rewarded through performance. And you can get everything that you need to do by being jackpotted at the end of the performance. Yeah. Like best behavior, you can get the rest of your food. Anyway, the following day when like she made a standpoint of it, she said, okay, I'm telling you, don't feed the dogs tonight. We'll feed them today through training. Do not feed them. The difference that Tate made in the second day that she turned up with a foreign handler. So, Georgie is not her handler, but the way she that, that dog transformed was absolutely amazing. Mm. Simply by doing following those similar strategies. In her defense, probably Georgie, I don't know that she would have fed her beforehand that dog beforehand she would have kept it for the for the food it might have just been the dog was made better because it was the second day and, and it was hungrier yeah 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 georgie is very intuitive because like, yeah, i feel like she would i know a lot of other people weren't because there were a lot of fat little puppies at that seminar yeah georgie's pretty switched on and she's involved in horse racing and yeah training and everything that. she knows all about it but anyway that that's something that's been really grinding my gears lately you people. did a video on it too with remco with his explosive power through your did um, I? Marker training. Which one? The most recent one you put up on your operant canine and- Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I just talked about it, yeah. Mm. Well, being yeah, putting up a lot of videos on, on that. That's a good segue into our next thing we're going to talk about was branding and marketing. I think the branding and marketing one will probably leave to when we have our guest mm. on because I think that that person is- overly qualified in this country and certainly probably around the world as somebody who's very, very proficient in business marketing and- Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yep. All right. One thing I did want to talk about uh, just quickly before we do the wrap up is I put a video up myself of uh, a Labrador that came to me. Oh, yeah. I saw that. Yeah. So, Labrador came here for training and the problem was the person lives in the east of Sydney the dog goes to dog parks and beaches and so forth around that area and constantly just raids people's food all the time. So it'll basically go into picnic baskets and just help itself. And the owner was very embarrassed about the behavior of the dog. Like it was complicating her life somewhat mm -hmm. because she could never let the dog off lead because it was just getting external reinforcement all the time. The stupid thing about this not the owner. I'm not saying that she's stupid because she's not at all. The stupid thing about this was that she was advised never to say no to the dog. Like the dog was never to have any form of punishment whatsoever. So somebody was trying to bait me online to say what the issue was. Well, the issue was is that the dog had been taught only positive reinforcement as a example in training. Yeah. So the dog had no concept of the entire quadrant of operant conditioning yeah and unfortunately it actually got to the stage where we had to use positive punishment to teach the dog not to go and help itself to food now this wasn't excessive in any way shape or form so the owner of the dog asked me she said what type of training do you do and i said why do you ask like tell me where that question originated from and she said well I've been told that positive reinforcement training is the only way to go, mm -hmm. like, you know, positive only. And I said, well, I'm what I call myself a positive first trainer, okay? And I said, make up a stupid name for something. I'm a positive first trainer. Yeah. And I said, so I will use positive training initially until I can no longer do it. And I said, let me ask you a question now. This is in the early consult stage. I said, let me ask you a question. By the way, sorry, have you trademarked positive first trainer? 
now have. You it's, should. Yeah. Don't let this go to air without doing that or else someone will be fucking- It'll be on somebody's that. video and they'll- Yeah. 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 So, Glenn Cook, positive first trainer. I, it, I, I don't- Right now, it's 11.01 on Tuesday, the 13th of November. So, if you see it on somebody else's video, it's mine. <laughs> it's mine. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, I've actually been putting a little bit of thought into that because most of us are, most good dog trainers are positive first trainers. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, we look at the aspect, because if you're operant trainer, you actually look at the concept of, I mean, when we're doing puppies, it's the same sort of thing. We're teaching our dogs positive first until you can no longer do it. So the question I put back to the owner of the dog is, so you've done positive training or positive only training in the entire history of the dog. How's it working out for you? And she said, well, we've got to be honest, not good because I can't stop him from doing what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And I said, the problem is, is I said, if you're telling the dog that, or if you, you, if you live with the constraint that the dog can never learn the concept of no, How's that working out for him? How's it working out for you? Hmm. I said, your life must be miserable. And she said, well, it's getting to that stage. And this is a very bright lady. I mean, you know, she's she's very academically sound, but she's been put into this, or she's been typecast into this belief that you can't train a dog unless it's positive only training. Yeah. So we took the dog in, we put him on a martingale and all we did was we put some food down on the ground and we taught him that if he starts going into his foraging behavior, that he gets corrected for it. The corrections weren't excessive. I don't have to justify how I correct a dog because I did it well. And the dog not only left the food on the ground, like never, ever tried to pick it up within five minutes. Five minutes, he was totally done with with that game. Yeah, I, understood. I, I'd change it to different locations. So I went from the ground to chairs to dropping it out of your hand to making it predatory, rolling it along the floor, the whole lot. He wouldn't touch it. Like he knew what the consequences were. And nothing at no time was excessive. He never got a hard correction. He never yelped. He never carried on. He just learned for the first time, I know what, I cannot do it anymore. So we offered him plenty of opportunity to take it from me. We picked up the food off the ground and gave it to him out of her hands. We marked him. By the end of it, she said, I can't believe that my dog is sitting at your feet, wagging his tail. He's enthusiastic and he wants to uh, hang out and play with you when I'm the one that's been nice to him all along. And I said, you've been nice. I'm being nicer Mm. because I'm teaching him how to speak to me. So I know we've talked about this before. This is not magic. I've done this. Many dog trainers around the world have done this. This is not guruism it's not some spell that you cast on training which fundamentally the stupid thing here and the reason i'm making a point of this is that when people see things like this they're actually overwhelmed with not knowing what's happening in front of their own eyes like they look at you like you've actually cast a spell on the dog they they cannot comprehend for a second on what's going on the reality is is that now we're living in a world where the accessibility to tools and training systems have been erased from people's capability. Yeah. I just look at it and I see something so simple, something so simple. Like in five minutes, I had that dog convinced that touching food and foraging on the ground was a really bad. Now, we all know anybody who's listening to this and saying, yeah, but Glenn, you know, like that's a short term fix. It's not long term. I totally get it. But over a period of time, if you're consistent with that dog, he's going to learn. doesn't matter what environment I'm in, I can't touch food on the ground. Yeah. But I can have it readily from you. As soon as you cue me 
I can run straight to you and I'm guaranteed every single time without a word of a lie, I can take it from your hand. Hmm. And he was learning that from me straight away. He wouldn't. He didn't even want to go and hang out with her anymore. He was sitting at my feet, wagging his tail, running around, performing all these little triggers to try and get the food off me. Fine, no problem. Hmm. We were doing sits and drops and everything. Dog was well trained. You know, like he'd had training before. I hadn't had any effect on anything to do with that. Simple stuff. Simple. So, my favorite clients ever are people who have exhausted all avenues with a, say, exactly that situation, right? Where it's not a big deal that I was just eating food. Yeah. I mean, it would be a big deal if he ate something that was poisonous or problematic. This dog wouldn't, he would eat food covered in razor blades. He was that. (laughs) (laughs) But so that's my favorite. He's a Labrador. That's my favorite client Mm. because when they come from a positive, uh, like force-free, extreme zealot, all they've done is create a monster. Yeah. And they, which is exactly what I want. Yeah. They create this dog that's ready to learn and they seem like a headache. But once you explain to them, hey, I have the ability to tell you yes and you're aware of that, right? I, I can certainly tell you you're on the right thing and you'll understand. But hey, I can also tell you when you're doing the wrong thing, the world becomes black and white to the dog rather than these various shades of gray. And so they are they're highly motivated, they're highly energetic, and provided you provide uh, the pressure in a, a way that is fair and consistent, they accept that very quickly and they, exactly as you say, they like you more than the owner because they're like, oh, you can tell me yes and no and I don't have to – because the owner's saying no but just in a really shitty way. They are like an old bet. As you're explaining that, I'm picturing – we spoke about in the in the Patreon episode about Nipopo where people are accidentally Nipopoing their dogs all mm, the time. I'll mm. bet you that's what she's doing. I'll bet you that dog lent into the collar Absolutely. and dragged 100%. her to food, yep. negative all the way. But she he was off there. lead all the time too, which was oh, adding even, to the problem. Even better for building my positive only thug dog that is ready to be squeezed. And then before too long, <laughs> you've got perf- like you've got this amazing dog and people think you're a fucking magician because you're like, you, you can communicate yes and no to the dog and- Show him that the no's only make you closer to the yeses. This is a thing that it gives me a lot of internal conflict with people is that the more I know about behavior and the more observable or the more observations I've made with with training people, dogs, cats, whatever we're working with, there is no species on the planet who will have an issue with you as long as they're given the access to controlling the outcome. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter whether it's reinforcement or punishment. Both is motivating the dog to do or not to do behavior. And if they know that and they have access to the control mechanism of it, whether I get far less punishment and far more reinforcement, they will never have an issue with it. It's just that when we limit the access of control to that, yeah, yeah. that's when they have an issue and that's when it becomes cruel. Yeah. That's my definition of cruelty anyway, is when you limit control to how much reinforcement you can have or how much punishment because you're unsure of the situation. I mean, uncertainty is going to happen initially in training. There's always a little confusion around that. But when you are certain and you do know, it's like somebody told me in business a while ago, let your yes be a yes and your no be a no, and then you'll know exactly where you stand with people. Yeah. And it's the same thing with training. Let your animal have that same access as as well. Yeah. And the animal knows exactly where it stands in life, right there, right then. I think for sure when you're dealing with using punishment, if it's unfair, unpredictable, and unavoidable, you create anxiety and sure. problems, right? Yeah. And that's where- That's stressful. Yeah, and that's how you create stress. And people who will say using punishment, that's how it has either been used on them, yeah, right? And 
or they've seen it used that way. And for sure, you can fuck a dog up. You can fuck a people up really badly. And cool. yeah. Like that's abuse. That That is when, when that you is see- That is cruel. That is yeah. cruel. Yeah. And a lot of the people who sort of come into this industry maybe have had um, a lot of the, the really force-free people who really are like, you can't even say no to the dog. In my experience, the ones that I know have probably had not a great upbringing and did have perhaps an abusive parent. And so- they expect that all punishment is along those lines. And yeah. so, and then the problem, who am I? It's unnecessary empathy. Yeah. So it's people who say to me, oh, I just don't want to use punishment on ethical grounds. I'm like, cool, that's fine. But you will never achieve things that you could if you did. And a lot of those people- You have then, to live with limitation. And, and some of those people go, that's fine. Yeah. I accept that. Yeah. And yeah, who am fine. I to argue either yeah, way? That's, that's right. That's if you're fine. prepared to live with it, that's fine. But when people argue to the hilt that, Punishment causes anxiety and stress and all those sort of things. They don't understand motivation properly. Well, that, but they've probably been in a situation where they were being, where they or someone they know or someone they could observe were receiving unfair, unclear punishment they were not in control of. Yep. And therefore, they infer that that's the only way. Which it can again be is done. the problem with empathy. Yeah. So once you once you decide that's the only way it can be done, then you, you're kind of trapped. Yeah. And same deal. I'm not a fucking psychologist. Do, I do you like punishing that. dogs? No. Nor do I. No. I mean- But I would argue in my training, especially with dogs that I'm into training at the moment, I almost never use punishment. That's right. I almost never use any punishment. I use negative reinforcement. But see, this is what I talk about in when I'm teaching this and in, in seminars is like, because if you're going to the- If you're going to- you know, if I'm teaching a seminar for sport dog people, on the field, your dog is always doing something. Mm. So in the work, we'd almost never punish the dog. I can't think of a situation where I would ever punish the dog because he's meant to be under control. He's meant to be doing a thing. Mm. So I don't ever want to stop something. I want him to be doing something else. But and so punishment is still motivation. It's just motivation to lean away from other behaviors yeah. like so you can get on with doing other things yeah. like you can you can learn you can lean away from being less productive into far more productive yeah I, what, I agree yeah, but that's I why think, people have got to i think people have got to get it out of their head that punishment is terrible punishment should be swift it should be concise and it should give you access to other areas of success in your life yeah yeah so you can learn okay let's just stop doing that or lean away from that or reduce it or go extinct in it, whatever we're talking, let's just leave this alone so then I can explore a whole new area of possibility and reinforcement that's accessible and available Mm. to me. I agree. I just think that, so like punishment and reinforcement, negative or positive, it happens in the head of the dog when you're doing it. Mm. And so I think there's a lot of people who- Oh, you're channeling Esther. Well, a little bit, but- so there's a lot of people who would say, say, here's a great example. When people have problems with their dog outing, right? The dog won't out. So they are prepared now. Okay. I'll punish him for not outing. But when he outs, he goes into a job, he goes into a guard or he comes back to a heel. He does something. So I feel like I would argue most dogs are not being punished for not outing. They are being negatively reinforced into the next job. Mm-hmm. Right. And I've, I think that that distinction can become important because in in behavioral context, I might punish because I, I just want to stop one thing and I want other things to happen. But in training, I can't imagine where I ever want my dog to perceive any pressure I put on him as a punishment. I want him to understand that I'm negatively reinforcing. I'm reinforcing into the next behavior because I don't want some random outcome. I want a specific outcome mm. and it's never to stop. It's to do. So- 
someone's dog who won't let go and won't out and gets punished, well, then he's free to do anything he wants after that. But we'd, we never ask that. We want the dog to do a specific thing after they out. So then it's really, it's reinforcement into the out. Mm. Yeah, it makes sense. The more sense it makes is in the clarity of the dog. You can only ever argue these points when the dog is exhibiting what you're trying to explain. Yeah. And once the dog is is, is exhibiting the behavior, then you know that you're on the right track. Yeah. Like if the dog is leading, um, leading from one behavior straight into another behavior, then the dog was never conflicted about what it should have been doing next. It's just saying, okay, well, that happened as a result of this, then I need to do this. Yeah. So it's basically doing the math in its head. This happens as a result of that, so I don't do that, I'll do this. Yeah. Mm. I know I th- that sounded really confusing, but yeah, I, I, knew, I knew what I was trying to say. One of the examples I've been using recently with people is, imagine you're in a room that has two chairs. Mm. You're sitting in one chair, you, it becomes uncomfortable, so you get up and you move into the other chair. Were you punished for being in the one chair or were you negatively reinforced into the other chair? And if you were to ask around the room, I think everybody listening probably has an opinion but all those opinions are worthless because the only opinion that matters is the person that happened to. They're yep. the only one that can actually- they, they truly know. Yeah. They're the yep. only one that could actually tell you what their motivation was to get into the other chair. Hmm. Did I just get out of this one and then I was free and then eventually sat in the other one? Or did I get out of this one in order to relieve the discomfort and then get into the other one? Like, well, it, Ask yourself why you roll in bed. Yeah, mm. that's the same. It's so, exactly the same concept. So it only happens in the in the brain of the of the person who's the getting in and out yeah. of the chair. So then there's people who say, oh, you're using punishment. And I think I say, well, I think I can make a compelling case that I'm using negative reinforcement. However, uh, I can't be sure. There's no so, way for me to know. Well, you could say that you're fast-tracking choices. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. If you want to play on words, that yeah. you're fast-tracking a choice. Yeah. Well, no, I, 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 even then I, I don't agree with that because I don't, I don't want a choice. You'll do the, the next thing. Mm. You, you give up that thing into the next thing. If there was choice, I would say there's punishment, right? Because if, if I want you to stop that but do anything, then that well, would it's, be a punishment. Well, it's still a choice if you go to the next chair regardless if you're uncomfortable or not you still have to you still have to choose to do it yeah yeah like so you, that, you well, can't that's the- some people might say oh fuck it i'll just all i'll do is i'll just shift around on the chair till i feel a little bit better but then other people might go no look that chair looks nicer i choose to leave this chair and go over to the next chair. yeah so then but then would you argue that the punishment or the negative reinforcement was insufficient. If you didn't get out, the level was perhaps insufficient if you didn't get out of the chair, if you just shif- shuffled around on it and got to the, and never made it to the other one or never got out of that chair. Like if you just got out of the chair, I would argue, yes, you were punished for being in the chair. But if you got into the other one, then maybe you were negatively reinforced into that. I don't know. Hmm. And I hear like, there's a lot of people that want to tell me, oh, you, you trained with punishment. And I'll say, well, I probably don't. Are you talking about decisions over choices? Because I think they're two different things. I think think when you choose something, it's far more powerful than making a decision. Because when you're making a decision, you're putting a lot of thought into something and killing off the- Hang on. So so define those two things for me. Decision and choice is what you're comparing. Yeah. So when you make a choice, I think- one of the most powerful aspects of being a human being is the choices that we make in life. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where, it, for example, I, I went to this seminar years ago and 
somebody said, okay, I've got two ice creams, okay, a chocolate or a vanilla ice cream. Which one do you want? Chocolate. Why? I like chocolate better than vanilla. Why? Tastes better. Why? It just does. Yeah, why? That's how I feel. Yeah? Why do you feel that way? I don't know. So you just wanted the chocolate one? Yeah. Why? Because I had two options and I chose the chocolate. You chose it. Okay. You didn't sit there and and analyze it and go, well, you know, like I could have vanilla, it's still ice cream, or I could have chocolate. Well, I have done that in the past and I know that with those two variables, it's going to be chocolate over vanilla. Okay. So at one stage you decided- both. Yeah, that's right. One stage you made a decision. On the next stage that you were doing it, you made a a conscious choice. I want chocolate. I'm taking chocolate. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing when people say to me, if you've got a gun to your head, what are you going to do? You've got no choice. We have. You can take a bullet or you can do what you're being coerced into doing. That's bad advice for anybody listening. There's tactical things you can do when the gun is to your head. <laughs> Don't just ta- it's not it's not two sides. No. Well, Get in you, contact. You can cho- <laughs> you can choose to fight the person. Yes. You can choose to go into combat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of things you can do. This is deep. No, but I think that it, I think it's worth talking about because I I especially I've been talking to more and more positive only force-free people mm. because I found some that are not- um, Unlike that, us positive first people. Yeah, us positive first people. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I've found some that can hold a, a reasonable discussion. Yeah. And so- Oh, yeah, you've been talking about- uh, Yeah, some different people and yeah. I've, I've expanded that to some more. And I, I uh, as a trainer in the style that I am, as a positive first trainer, mm. uh, I- Want to get as which you made a choice to be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I want to get as good as I possibly can mm. at the positive side of things, and who better to learn it from than people who use it exclusively and get results? Yep. But what I'm finding is none of them are doing. There's no secret sauce. I'm yet to find anything. There's a few little tricks that people have, but they're nothing that I wasn't reasonably aware of anyway. Mm. There is no magic in it that they're doing that is beyond anything that I think a really good positive first trainer is is using. <laughs> and unbeknownst to them, they actually use punishment and training. They just- No, I'm talking to ones that are, that ex- admit that. They're, they just don't want to use pain and they don't want to use any tools. So they're yep. the people. So they're the ones that I'm, I'm talking to. I, anybody that then says to me, I never use any punishment. I'm like, thank you. Thank you for your time, but we're done because you're a moron. If you don't feed your dog, do you think your dog doesn't go through a concept of pain? Well, or if you withhold food and you make your dog, you force your dog into a point of being hungry for food, do you think your dog isn't actually experiencing no, I some gr- form of discomfort? No, I agree with you. And this is one of the arguments that yeah. I've been using with these silly, people. Is, silly stuff. And I quote Esther Schultz's study quite yeah. a bit where you say, hey, that like for a dog that is really intensely interested in finding the right outcome, yeah. a very quick push in the right direction is less stress inducing and therefore you would argue ethically better for that dog yep. than having to put them through a non-reinforcing marker and which raises cortisol levels and stress and yeah mm. so they don't people don't want to admit that but the, the people I'm talking to and having these conversations with are not morons they understand that yeah, they are good. they're actually they're good people in a lot of ways yeah. yeah but and they've just decided that but there's this sort of undercurrent that they know something we don't as positive first trainers. I'm loving this term. This mm. is fucking great. 
Because the issue is when when you say balanced trainers, that's a term that was put on us and it it encompasses too much mm. because people who are just yank and cranking and say, yeah, I'm a balanced trainer and you're not, you're you're at the, the far I'm end. I'm going to make a t-shirt, Glenn Cork, positive, positive first. first. Mm. Yeah. This is a great idea. Don't let this go out without registering this somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's in media. We've claimed it. Yeah. That, that, that. I've, looked it, I've looked it up online. It doesn't exist. Positive first. Yeah. Yeah, well, it better exist by the time I put this out. Mm. Um, so, we're referring to ourselves now as positive, positive first, first trainers. trainers. So, as a positive first trainer, mm. from the positive only trainers, there's this inference that they know something we don't. Mm. And I'm yet to find out what that is. Again, and I believe it might have been Chad that said this, which I really, I enjoy his concept of deep thinking and unpacking a lot mm-hmm. of knowledge in the industry. And I'm sure it was him who on the podcast or at some stage in a conversation said, because of the positive only trainers, it's had to force us to be a little bit more precarious and honest about our own training system. Yeah, yeah. And I and I thought about that and I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. Because of these people, because of people who are putting ethical restraints in place, it forces us to be more careful about what we're doing in the applications of punishment yeah. rather than just being yank and crank, which was the old system of training. Yeah. And I mean, we've come so far in what we've learned about dogs. We're coming so and we're still coming so far. Yeah. You know, like our understanding of neuroscience and new science in, in how animals learn, MRI technology, how the brain actually relates and uh, understands stimulus. We're really, we're traveling in the right direction and we're better because of it. So uh, <laughs> I told a force-free trainer recently along the same lines, I said that the force-free training community is the negative reinforcement that has pushed the balanced training community forward. Oh, right? And they were like, what? And I was like, you as a whole, by becoming so good, because it, some of them are so capable and so good, there is a missing piece, but they are very, very good at, at bringing on behavior mm. and they can bring flashier, more powerful behavior than say the old school. Like you look at, you know, IPO videos from the eighties, yep. just flat heels, just dogs that want to die rather than be on the field, but they'll do what they're told, but they yep. have no interest in doing it. Yep. It's like the stress applied to trainers from the force free community who are getting flashy, powerful behavior, but unreliable is the negative reinforcement that has pushed balance trainers further forward. As so you are negative reinforcement. The thing you think is the devil, <laughs> you are it to someone else. Well, they use positive punishment online when they become <laughs> abusive and yeah. Well, I'm, I'm staying away from those people because they're, that's, they're, they're the pains in the ass that aren't. Um, they're the zealots. They're the extremists who give the other people a bad yeah. name who are getting on with the job of training dogs and doing the right thing and are – you know, they, look, they've made a choice in doing what they want to do. They're not bad people. They're actually good people. They love dogs. They love the community. They're very supportive of the community. And the people who don't get on the internet and don't rave and act like lunatics and just get out in the field and blast away with trophies and ribbons and do their own thing and let and live and let live, hey, I've got nothing but respect for you guys yeah. because you're actually doing what we all want to do. We actually love dogs and we want to train them. And as I said before, thinking about that term being positive first is that I don't enjoy punishment. I know you don't enjoy punishment. And I know most of the people who are actually involved in being um, what we consider a balanced trainer who uses the whole operant mechanism is that they look at it and say, well, it's only use what's necessary at the time Mm. in order to communicate effectively with this dog. Yeah. You know, it's a strategy adapted by wildlife 
all across the world. Again, I challenge people who who don't believe me, who don't believe in dominance theory or anything like that. Go and look at every National Geographic footage that's out there on different species since the 1970s. I mean, as a kid, I used to love sitting down watching National Geographic. I used to watch every single episode when you're watching elephants fighting over territory or resources or mating rights, etc., etc. Snakes doing it, sea creatures doing it microscopic organisms doing it. Why are they doing this? The dominance theory is a funny one because there's a lot of people who are trying to completely dismiss dominance theory. Uh, Um, Silly. And I I would argue that it doesn't have a lot of place in training. I don't think that it's that important. Like I would like you think if you would- It exists for a reason. Yeah. It's it's for a reason and it's gone as quickly as it surfaces. But in, in training a dog to do something, I don't think dominance theory is really very applicable. In fact, I'm quite, well, I'm sure it's applicable, but as I say, if you were to ask my dog who's dominant over who, he would tell you that he's dominant over me because he controls me constantly. In he certain pushes, situations. Yeah, yeah, he pushes me to give him things. Mm. So I don't think it's this devil thing that people think. But, it's not at all. But as you say, anyone that's ever looked at animals in it's the wild- just been, it, It's been poorly communicated for yeah. a long, long time. Yeah. Since, I mean, you know, the early days of you can't let a dog walk in the house before you do and you've got to spit in their food and you've got to yeah, do all yeah, these. Like I mean, it's just- these are old wives' tales that I think we've, on many shows that we've discussed and probably well into the future, I'll tell people that if you're still listening to trainers that are coming up with these theories, it's I think it's something that they've learned, you know, and they might be trainers that have been doing it for 20 years. For 19 and a half years, they've had the same mm. dog and pony show and it's just poor training. The dominant series thing is a funny one. Have you, you familiar with Juco 2? Have you ever heard of? So Juco 2 is a, a very famous Malinois often considered the epitome of the breed, right? Like as good as he ever got. Some of the accounts, there's only like two photos of him. Some of the accounts of Juco too, when you talk about dominance, was, you know, it's common practice for people listening to do like rag work with puppies and stuff at the same time. And or like when you're working one dog, you have all the other dogs on a tie out and they're forced to watch the other dog. Not forced, that's the wrong word. They get to watch the other dog and it elicits, you know, excitement. They can't Mm. wait for their turn. It builds frustration and whatever. Apparently, when Juco 2 would work, no other dog would even put tension in the back tie. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, that's a funny one to think about when people say, like, dominance doesn't exist. And it's like, no, no, like, this dog had so much to him that other dogs in his presence wouldn't challenge him for anything. Like, Mm. there was no point in pulling on the back tie to try and get to a decoy that was his because there's no fucking way I'm going to try and bite someone if if it's his. Read the first chapter, stand up straight with your shoulders back and listen to Jordan Peterson explain what happens to the brain chemistry mm. in lobsters in situations where they lose battles with more dominant lobsters. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. Huh? It's very interesting and it's very relevant to the topic that we've just talked about. Man, we've been going for a while. We have been going for a while. For it, went all, it went all over the place, but it's good shit. Mm. It really is. Um, so, it's you important know, stuff. It's really, it's important stuff because- one thing about the doing these podcasts is, and one of the things I really love about it is all the information that I'm learning myself, and I'm sure you feel the same way, mm. is access to, to unpacking things and thinking more deeply about topics. Yeah. I mean, there's times where we've talked about certain subjects and I've walked away and thought, I need to probably research that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I need to look into it a little bit more. So the same way what we're talking about how the positive-only crowd have influenced the compulsion crowd to be a little bit more investigatory in their own training practices. 
it's given me that same sort of concept of going away and updating my knowledge a little bit more, mm. like reading more. And I've been reading more books now since I've been doing the podcast and I have for, that's, for a long time. It's fun asking everybody that comes yeah. on what they're reading. Yeah, it really is. And I'm actually researching material to, to read on a more regular basis. Like yeah. it's it's awakened my thirst for improving my knowledge on things because yeah. I thought, you know, like you can't claim to be an expert in fields unless you're updating your knowledge. And that's the whole, I mean, you wouldn't want to see an accountant who's not updating their information on latest taxes and how to get the best claims for you, you'd be disappointed if your accountant for the last 10 years hadn't updated their skills. You'd yeah, be thinking, yeah. why am I getting audited and arrested for tax yeah. fraud? Yeah. And it's the same thing with going to a trainer. Why would you want to go to a trainer who has no new information, yeah. whose information is 20 years old and they're still doing the same crash and bash type of training that they did 20 years ago? Yeah. It's so far outdated. Yeah, Like we really need to be pushing ourselves as a community and challenging ourselves to be better suited in our knowledge. Yeah. As knowledge is updated, so should we. Yeah, 100% agree. Mm. That That's something I've been doing a lot, a lot of deep thinking about. It's kind of how we came up with this, you know, started this new, it's not a new business, it's just a trading name under the over the existing business, Operant Canine, mm. because I was talking about how, you know, I'm always talking about how I want my dog to be operant and then over his operants, I layer conditioned signals for conditioned responses. Yep. So it starts out as him thinking he's in control and then I layer in these things and he loses control but does it anyway with heart and soul. That's the idea of all the training that I'm doing. Mm. It's a good name. Yeah, I'm pretty happy with it. And and the idea being the logo, if you haven't checked it out, jump onto Facebook, Operant Canine. Stick it up. It out. Put it in the- I think I already did one time. But put it up again. Uh, the logo is the symbols for like Operant Conditioning, but they're all spinning around like a like an atom because it- Exactly as I say, it's not always clear to me which one you're using. It's very quantum, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Inside joke. Yeah. It's not always clear to me which one you're doing. And I think like in a Skinner box, it's very clear. I can, where where there's one lever and one stimulus, I can say, yes, the dog turned off the stimulus by flicking the lever. That was negative reinforcement. That's very clear. Or, you know, the, the floor becomes electric and the dog jumps off it and he was punished for being like, I can get all this, right? Mm. Like, and it's very simple, but when... When it's in the real world, it's not as simple and it happens in the head of the dog. And that's why I've got these things spinning around showing why they're all interconnected. And I'm really loving, I've been diving really deep on this. And the more I teach it to people, the more, the better I understand it. It gets more clear in my head and I get better at explaining it. So I'm really happy doing that at the moment. It's it's, Mm. it's a lot of fun. And for people that are asking, so one thing it's worth talking about here is, you know, my business to this point has been MSK, Monty Stewart Kennels, because me and Sam started the video series together. Yep. And I'm sure we'll talk about it in a marketing thing when we talk about it, but that which, was- Which I, I got to say, if you, go, leading back into the whole puppy uh, explanation, yeah. I know I've said this before, but this is a great video series if you want to see Val developing from a tiny baby puppy into a dog that is integrated into a family life and yeah. into human life. It's a great series to watch, and not only watch, but to learn yourself on how to apply those skills. And yeah. it's, it's both Pat and Sam uh, yeah. running it. So you've got uh, two high-level <laughs> educators there that, are, uh, that have put something together that I think a lot more puppy people should be investing their time in. I'm not just yeah, doing thanks. a plug for you just because it's your video. I watched it. I re- I thought, wow, this is actually really good. Yeah. Well, look, we're both still really happy with it, but really proud of it. It, it is, you know, we haven't had any negative feedback for just general puppy raising. And Even for, if you know about puppy work, it complements what you already know. Yeah. And for pet dog stuff, like just for what 99% of dogs are, just a dog that is going to fit awesomely into your life and cause like, as we talked about before, like minimal impact, mm. um, negative impact in your life. 
it's a very clear clarity into conflict on how to clarity from conflict. That's what our jobs are. Yeah, mm. um, but as I say, when we we because we were both more on army dudes that knew nothing, putting your name in a business is not a good idea, and kennels when you don't have a big facility is a stupid idea as well. So now I'm just training under that name. Yep. Um, Operant Canine. Check it out on Facebook and putting a lot of videos. And it's been, we had a great uptake and people are interested in hearing what I have to say now. And that you've I'm, got some seminars on the, yeah, on a the few things, horizon. Yep. A few things yeah. coming up overseas. You and, went, and you've just Australia. been to New Zealand. You did a coaching session with the Sporting Dog Club over there. Yep. But, I mean, but Pat's far more than sporting only. Like that's his passion. But, uh, you know, like if you want to reach out to him for other things as well, especially in like his passion is teaching dogs to do things. Mm. That's primarily where his focus is. But um, yeah, some really exciting things on the on the horizon. Yep. Mm. Oh, other thing I need to mention is, oh no, maybe we'll record an ad and it'll be at the start. Never mind. You've already heard it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Good work. Okay. All right. Let's wrap it up. Okay. All right. Well, so it went all over the place, but mm. it was exciting. I, I enjoyed this conversation. We didn't really come in the room with anything specific to talk about, like most days. Yeah. This is ad lib most of the time. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just our two thought. dickheads with microphones. Yeah, two dickheads with microphones with our thoughts on the day, and uh, we do appreciate that people find value in it and communicate it. There was somebody that was quoting us on Instagram the other day, like taking our, our really? quotes out. Yeah, and and I. Really appreciate that. I, I have to try and find out and remember who it was because- Was they, the quote, just two dickheads with microphones? No, it was actually things that we were like quotes that we we're saying in the podcast and underneath it, they had a quote from you and a quote from me and then they had words to live by. So- Wow. Yeah, yeah. It, well, I, I saw it- Um, Don't quote me. I just waffle shit. Well, there's some. There's always some diamonds in our in our sewage sometimes. So. <laughs> the sewage I fall into. The sewage you fell into. So, yeah. They, but it's like everybody. I mean- not everything that you do or say is going to be profound and is going mm. to change lives. But occasionally it's it's like many of the lectures that I go to and that you've been to and that other people have made a lot of time to go to is that learning theory is learning theory. But yeah, occasionally yeah. you'll hear a spin on it or new, some new science that's really exciting and you think, I've never heard it explained that way or I've never heard that yeah. spin on it or I've never heard – that new addition to it. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I really love about this industry yeah. and, uh, and the people that- Not just that in addition to it, sorry, before you keep going, is maybe doing it in that sequence. Mm. That's what I'm playing. That's what I'm obsessed with at the moment. And that's Nipopo, is that the sequence in which you can apply things to make it make it work better in the out, in the long-term outcome. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah, it's good stuff. All right. Let's do it. Let's wrap up. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, jump onto whichever subscription service you download us from, like, rate, share, subscribe, tell a friend. All those things help us get the word out there. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is to jump onto Patreon. Type in the Canine Paradigm on Patreon, and we're going to have another episode coming out next month. We've got a few in the pipeline. We're going to be doing on aggression. We're going to be doing some specific training techniques for the mill, a few other things that we've got coming out, but there'll be at least one a month coming out there. And maybe some um, uh, additional, yeah, maybe some presents for those some little people. gifts, some yeah. little gifts that we prepared the other day that we may be releasing very, very soon. Mm. If you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is just on Facebook. We are the Canine Paradigm on Facebook. If you want to get in contact with me now, you can hit me up at Operant Canine on Facebook. Mm. If you want to organise some training or a seminar or whatever, uh, Glenn, do you want them to get in contact with you? <laughs> Well, you can get in contact with me at Pet Resorts Australia or Canine Evolution. I'm always here. Those of you who've done the NDTF course, you know where I am. <laughs> All right. Let's hit the music. Bye.